Previously on House of Phantods. As the girls arrive at their destination, the Dagon makes sure the CIA agents, formerly known as Agent 1 and Agent 2, are no longer following them. And when they see the old Victorian house nestled in the shadow of Mount Rainier, they find themselves wondering, can a house have a doppelganger? We didn't think tampering with a government vehicle, especially a gray Sebring, was a smart idea. Pushing it into the underbrush and covering it with debris would be tampering. Turning off the ignition would be tampering. So would wiping off the small droplets of blood splattered on the seats and dashboard. I gotta give it to her, though, for as grating as her call is to the nerves... The Dagon is a pretty tidy eater, if that's all that remains of our stalkers. But with the car idling in the middle of the lane, we all knew our time at the house in Buckley would be short. It was only a matter of time before someone came up the driveway asking questions. Or worse, something, like a sea monster with an appetite. I'd heard of haunted objects, but can an object actually be a ghost? I was wondering that as we left the ghost of the permanently pissed-off Jared to guard the car with his ghostly gun. He seemed far more interested in the car than the three of us rushing off to learn what we could of House of Antod's mirror image. The bus lumbering up the drive had brought his three foster sisters out onto the porch, where they sat watching with an odd mixture of bored fascination and surprise. Simone toured the grounds with cell cam in hand as I spoke with them. As usual, the paladin women did their own thing. I'm learning not to ask. What is the point of backstory for any of the three foster sisters? Does it move this story forward in any way to tell you about how or why Millie ended up there? Or Hazel? Or Becca? They were there, in this huge old house. A paranormal hotspot no different than the house we'd just come from. All we wanted was to know who emailed Simone's YouTube channel pretending to be a foster brother who doesn't exist, and why. And that is where who and what they are, and their place on the psychic spectrum, matters. Because they knew from experience how to recognize paranormal activity when they saw it. Only the experience of the clairsentient, including the psychic finder, the empath, and the prescient dreamer, could prepare them for the inevitability of one day asking, is it live or is it Memorex? They knew it was pointless to take their concerns to the authorities. Whatever technology was being used on Jared was far too advanced for the authorities to not know about, which meant they could not be trusted. What the three of them needed was someone like them who could help them think it through maybe help them tap into the wireless connection 
and send out an SOS to others like them. I hated to be the one to tell her the wireless connection is just a metaphor, largely because Marina strongly disagrees with me on that and would make my life miserable over it later. Hazel knew Jared was being programmed remotely using his dreams because she was having his dreams as he was having them, watching in real time as he was being programmed. Something had to be done about what was happening, because if it was done here, it could be done anywhere. Becca, the empath, knew of the Instagram-famous Marina Paladin from her own Instagram feed. And through following her posts, she was led to Simone's YouTube channel. When she saw the House of Fantods in Simone's videos, she recognized everything about it. And that's how she knew Simone was the right psychic to contact. And Millie, the psychic finder, located Jared's journal in which he'd written the passcode that allowed them to email Simone from his account. Back in Eureka, the FBI had asked about an email exchange she'd had with Jared, because it came from Jared's account, after he was dead. They had good reason for obscuring their tracks. It was Hazel who drafted the email, because she's the literary artist among them and worthy of her talent if she's already figured out journaling dreams is the best way to strengthen descriptive narrative skills. Posing as a non-existent foster brother in the email, she pretended Jared had been telling him about the boot camp nature of his dream programming, when in fact, it was Hazel who was helplessly seeing it in their shared dreams. And it was all three foster sisters who were observing the hyperbolic synchronicities and street theater Jared was being subjected to, not the imaginary foster brother Hazel invented as a buffer between the authorities she didn't trust and the gods of cyberspace she trusted even less when she emailed Simone. Anything else you need to know? Do you need me to describe their eye color, their hair? What clothes they wear? Or do you trust my confidence in your own intuition? Because we have a lot of ground to cover, and getting bogged down in the minutia of physical appearance is going to slow down our collective hard drive. Yes, Jared was on the psychic spectrum, like Hazel said in her email. But he liked to pretend he was not. His ability to sense and channel communications from the spirits that inhabit the same space as the living was like nothing they'd ever heard of, yet he lacked insight into his gift. It seemed to them that the ghosts were trying to talk Jared out of something, because in the weeks and days leading up to the shooting, it seemed to them that all he did was argue with his invisible friends. It was what most alarmed the three foster sisters about what was coming. Between that and Hazel's front row seat to Jared's training program, the three foster sisters had a pretty good idea what it was, too. Not only did Jared make it clear in his journal that he believed he had been chosen to carry out some great 
plan. It explained the presence of the sparkly dust that had suddenly appeared in the house. He called it smart dust and said his invisible friends told him exactly what its purpose is, to facilitate his programming. In his journal, he wrote he was to be an agent of death for the opposition. He also wrote that the ghosts insisted that those behind it are part of the same entity behind the war in which they themselves were slaughtered on this very land. The most disturbing part was watching his journal entries go from terrified about what was happening to him to agreeing with these new thoughts that were invading his mind. He showed no insight into the dreams they were programming him with because he had no memory of them. Yet he was fully aware in the beginning that the thoughts he was waking with were not his own. Until the very end, when he embraced and took full ownership of them. Anyone but a psychic reading his journal would see it as an adolescent boy's descent into madness or the sophomoric scribblings of a budding young fiction writer. Becca said that watching it all unfold on the day of the shootings was like reliving a nightmare none of them could wake from. They all felt like those deaths in Tacoma were their fault. Been there, done that. I know the feeling well. Rumor has it I'm not the only one who dreamed about an event in New York before it unfolded in our living rooms on the small screen one morning. And none of us have ever been able to figure out just why we were given that particular precognition. The weird thing, Hazel said, somewhat ironically, while all of it was happening, we were getting the strongest feeling that what's in the carriage house has something to do with it. All three of them agreed they strongly felt that the paranormal activity in their foster home seemed to start there. They couldn't be sure if it was the old car that had belonged to the man who built the house or the ghost of the renter who'd plunged to his death from the apartment window above. He hadn't let anyone up there since it happened back in 68 so it was hard to get a good reading on it. I glanced up at the apartment window above the carriage house as they nodded grimly, and for a moment I thought I saw a familiar face. But I turned away when I heard Wallace and Simone come around from the back of the house along with the paladin women, and when I looked back, it was gone. The air went suddenly still and filled with the ozone of anticipation. An object broke the stillness as it came crashing through the apartment window and landed at Wallace's feet. It was a brick wrapped in yellowed paper. She picked it up and turned it over. Scribbled on it were three letters in red ink. F-B-I. Another sound grabbed our attention, and we turned to see a car coming up the driveway. It was the same FBI agents who had come to see Simone. It would seem a ghost had a message for them, 
and had recruited us to deliver it. Wallace handed the brick to the agent with the eerie resemblance to David Duchovny and told him it was for them. The puzzled G-man unwrapped it and smoothed the weathered paper enough to read. Looking up, he asked a question that rocked me. Who the hell is Stephen Fox? Does he have anything to do with that gray Sebring with government plates sitting in the lane with the engine running? He handed the paper to his partner. It was a draft notice. Stephen Fox was to appear at the nearest draft board for conscription into the Vietnam War. Scrawled across it in the same red ink was this. Dear St. Fear, The children are sick and tired of being drafted into wars that have nothing to do with us. Go fuck yourselves for a final consequence. Signed, Stephen Fox. Millie broke the confusion by explaining that Stephen Fox had been the last renter to occupy the apartment above the carriage house. He chose to throw himself out the window to his death rather than surrender to the two FBI agents who were there to take him into custody for draft dodging. I don't know anything about a Sebring, but here's the car he left behind. It's been sitting here since 1968. She nodded to Hazel and Becca, who opened the other side of the double doors to the carriage house, which had remained closed when Jared's ghost revealed the Bentley from the Paris stream. My stomach knotted when I saw the car next to it draped in canvas, especially when Becca pulled it off to reveal a cherry red vintage Mustang convertible. Wallace's face went pale as our eyes met. How the hell is it possible for the same car to exist simultaneously at two different times in two different locations? Or for that matter, the same man or ghost of a man? And don't even get me started on the thing with Saint Fear. It was a fun, meaningful coincidence last Christmas when we all wrote the same poem with that title. But this is just weird. Agent Mulder's partner looked at us sternly, and with her best look-I'm-not-kidding voice said, she didn't know what game we were playing at, but it wasn't funny. I didn't quite know how to tell her that laughter is often the only way everyone else here manages to cope with the fantods. Would you believe Jared was compelled by a bunch of militant ghosts of the Puget Sound War to commit a random mass shooting to avenge their deaths for drafting them into something they wanted nothing to do with, I said, half hoping they'd swallow it and leave? Agent Mulder gave me a deadpan look and asked if those were the same ghosts who emailed Simone Jones. That depends, I shrugged. If the ghost of a draft dodger who died in 1968 can send you a message by throwing a brick through a window in 2021, 
Who's to say the ghost of a mass murderer couldn't send her a message on the Internet? In the world of a fiction writer, maybe, the agent said, looking at me sternly. Don't think we haven't looked into you, Cassandra speaks. We have, and we'd like to know exactly what you're doing here. You and that bus. It is the one that was in the driveway, isn't it? Do you expect us to believe you transported minors across state lines in a bus associated with an escort service to the residence of a mass murderer on some kind of independent study field trip? And what's the significance of this house being the exact mirror image of the one in Eureka? What indeed? That, in a nutshell, is the question of the millennium. Where do I even begin describing the chaos that erupted while I stood there trying to come up with a narrative that would explain what we were all doing there? Turns out I didn't need to. Help arrived in an unexpected series of events that made it unnecessary. First, the ghost of Jared appeared on the roof of the carriage house with his gun. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers! He shouted as if it really meant something. I assure you, it only ever means something on Christmas Eve when I'm watching the one movie that gets me in the holiday spirit like no other. Speaking of spirits, the dearly departed Jared's shouting must have hit a nerve, because the next thing we knew, the ghost of Stephen Fox launched through the window like a poetically haunted missile, as if it really meant something. When the two specters collided, their ectoplasm exploded into a cloud of sparkly dust that came raining down on all of us. Apparently, the nuclear winter caused by the exploding ectoplasm of two young men who were drafted into a war they knew next to nothing about can do that. I wanted to say to the two Fibbies that we now know what happens when you cross the streams, but they were too busy doing the duck and cover behind their car as if that meant something. Marina nonchalantly strolled over to them and told them to relax. It's either pure intention or smart dust, which they should be familiar enough with that acting like a couple of pussies about it just makes them look stupid. I know what you're thinking. This is the part where we form an alliance with the FBI, who are not only clueless about the existence of ghosts, but apparently completely unaware of what's actually going on with the opposition. I suppose that's not outside the range of possibility. They mean well, I'm sure. But let's face it, they just don't have the imagination to be of much use to us, or the opposition, apparently. The opposition likes people who can think outside the box, Maybe do a little microdosing to stimulate their creativity. 
which is essential when you're thinking up ways to get people to manufacture more dark energy. Isn't the reason the FBI can't get decent code writers because all the good ones smoke pot and aren't afraid to participate in the occasional ayahuasca ceremony? So the FBI is cluelessly passing drug test after drug test, or at least it was, until this random encounter with the ghosts of a draft dodger and a mass murderer. Now they're worried someone might have slipped some acid in their gas station coffee. On the other hand, the successful programming of today's new electronic MK Ultra soldier does rely heavily on the subject ingesting drugs. Isn't that why the opposition made sure Middle America got hooked on OxyContin so they'd be easier to program? You honestly don't think it was an accident they voted to put an orange tool of chaos in the Oval Office, do you? Maybe, just maybe, the FBI is the only ally we can trust. They're not on drugs, so are less likely to have been programmed by the opposition, for one thing. And for another, they're quick studies. I mean, just look at how quickly they picked up on the whole thing with ghosts. They were still crouched behind their car, shouting back and forth at each other, This shit's real! when the rest of us retreated to the shade of the porch. Are they anything like the two FBI agents in that show you insist got switched in a Mandela effect? Marina said. What'd you call it? X-Files? I nodded yes, and told her the guy's a dead ringer for the actor who played the agent. What about her? she said. Does she look anything like his partner? I said no. Jillian Anderson has red hair. You mean Pamela Anderson, she replied. She plays David Hasselhoff's partner in the Hex Files. Why are we even talking about this? Thank mm-hmm. you.